Good morning. I'm Jerry. I'm alcoholic. Because of God's grace, the actions of AA and sponsorship, I haven't drank since August the 5th, 1975. And I'm pleased with that this morning. I want you to know. I am very, very pleased. I'm, uh, uh, I'm excited to be here. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm, I'm, uh, always excited to be involved in Alcoholics Anonymous in any capacity. It doesn't matter what it is. Last year, I'm a member of the Foxhall Group in Bellevue, Nebraska, and there's about 450 of them. And they're all the people in the Omaha area who don't fit any place else. <laughs> We're all just about two French fries short of a Happy Meal. And I just, I sat in there and I, I moved to Nebraska from, uh, uh, Kansas. And I moved up there and I walked into my very, very first meeting. And this guy, his name's Cleet, said, hey buddy, you want a job? And so 25 years sober, my job in Alcoholics Anonymous is wipe down tables after the meeting's over. I had my row. And it's my row of tables. It's nobody else's row. A guy tried to help me, I run him off one night. It's my row. <laughs> and my tables are cleaner than everybody else's tables. And I like that. And, and if I make coffee, my coffee's better than anybody else's coffee. And, and, and I like that. I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I love my home group and it's an exciting place. We meet every Tuesday night. Uh, our meeting starts at eight o'clock. There's a bunch of us that, uh, get there early and we get together and we have what we call the Last Supper group. And there's ten or twelve of us there every Tuesday night and we eat supper. Uh, for about an hour and we talk and we have a cuss kitty out. And if anybody says a bad word, they have to put a quarter in the cuss kitty. And so our job for an hour is to incite people to cuss. <laughs> we even get the leaders every once in a while. <laughs> and then we have a beginner's meeting. And, uh, that's from 6.30 to 7. And there's about 50 people that come to, to our beginners meeting. And then, uh, at seven o'clock we break and, and, uh, all the Fox Hall group members start showing up. And they're, they're there at seven. And if the beginners meeting ain't done at seven, whoever's doing the beginners meeting is in trouble. Because they tell it. Or her. Whatever the case may be. And so they just don't like standing outside in the cold. There's smokers out there. <laughs> but it's an exciting place. And what we do at the beginner's meeting is one person will take a topic for six different weeks. We have six different topics each week. And we use, we use the beginner's meeting carefully. I mean, we just use what's in it. We do the steps. We do the traditions. We do a week on sponsorship. Uh, on Alcoholics Anonymous, we do a thing on our literature. We talk about alcoholism and the disease. And it's an exciting place for, for 35 minutes. And, and I just love, believe it or not, I love that hour and a half that I'm there with my sponsor and, and some of my brother pigeons and we eat and we just have a little fellowship. And then the next hour, 
I walk around and, and I do what everybody else does. I try to shake everybody else's hand in the room. I make sure. I just I just walk around the room for an hour and it's five minutes till eight. We sit down and I see and we start an AA meeting. We have a ten minute speaker and a main speaker. And it's an exciting place for me. I'm one of those that that uh, uh, the only excitement I ever had was in a bar. I took my first drink when I was 13 years old, and it was a, a quarter false staff beer. And and uh, uh, was in a a car. I was with three other guys. There was Johnny Wahlberger and uh, Lynn Ritchie and uh, my buddy Bobby Wilkerson. And we was in Johnny's car, and it was a '49 Chevy convertible, and it was white and it had black top, and it had dual straight pipes with plexiglass mufflers on it, and, and uh, they just made a lot of noise, and it had fender skirts on it, and he had a picture of an outhouse painted on the, on the fender skirt with his name under it, said John, and I thought that car was just so cool, I just loved that car, and we're riding around drinking, and I always had this feeling of being a little bitty short fat kid with rotten teeth and dirty clothes and unkempt hair. And that night with that quarter fall staff beer, my whole world changed. Everything that happened that night to me was funny. I laughed and I laughed and I laughed. I laughed at everything. I laughed at stuff that didn't have anything to do with anything. We're riding around and John says, Lynn works in a body shop. And John says, Lynn, I got a squeak in the front end of my car. And I said, maybe it's map. That wasn't funny to you. It wasn't funny to them. But it was so funny to me, I laughed so hard to pee my pants. <laughs> now, I don't know if I was alcoholic at that moment. But I want you to know, I never, ever had any more fun than I had that night. Everything that was ever going to happen to me, happened to me when I was 13 years old. I got drunk, got laid, and got thrown in jail. <laughs> and that was when I was 13. And that started... A series of events that lasted for the next 17 years. Over the next 17 years, I spent five years of my life in jails, penitentiaries, and nuthouses. I used and abused everybody I ever came in contact with. My mother was alcoholic. She was a Skid Row wino. She was a one-time and exciting, beautiful, talented woman. She was the Missouri Women's State Bowling Champion. She was about five foot six. She weighed maybe a hundred and 30, 135 pounds. She had beautiful long black hair. Uh, nice figure. Just a gorgeous lady. And she started drinking when she was bowling. And when I was 20 years old, we, uh, uh, we pulled her out of a Skid Row Wino Hotel and we took her to the hospital. And she died holding my hand. And the last thing she said to me was, honey, I gotta pee. She was about five foot five. Weighed about 205 pounds. Her hair was gray and matted. She had a scar that ran down her face. She didn't have any teeth. Her right leg was four inches shorter than her left leg, where her hip had been shattered in a barroom ball. Her skin was yellow. Her eyes were black and sunken in. And the last thing she said was, honey, I got you. I don't know. Uh, probably. When I've been touched more by the experiences of alcoholism than I was that night. The next 10 years of my life 
was spent in a tremendous anger and a tremendous rage and a tremendous hatred of people. I heard my story early when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. The guy said that he'd take a drink and he'd get drunk and he'd get spiked and he'd get in jail. And then he'd get sober and he'd get out of jail and he'd take a drink and he'd get drunk and he'd get in fights and he'd get in jail. And the only thing I ever did any different than that is every once in a while I'd get married. <laughs> just, that's just it. And sometimes, sometimes I'd, I'd go to get married when I already had one. <laughs> did you ever do that? I did that a lot. I did. I always had a lighthouse keeper. That's one over there ready in case this one doesn't pan out. You know, just, I only got married three times. My second wife told me this about my third wife. She said, you finally found somebody who can put up with you. I never could. And uh, we've been married for 31 years. So evidently, she was a little bit smarter than I ever gave her credit for. That night, I want to go back to that night on that, that court of false here because it's, it's something that, that, uh, uh, in my mind has, has, has always been there. I don't know what it was about that that changed me from the inside. I don't know what about, what it was about that, that very first drink. That just went, it's okay. I had always felt different. I grew up an asthmatic kid. Always wanted wanted a mother like Jimmy and Joy next door had. And I didn't have that. And consequently, I always felt different. After that, that quarter fall step here, I didn't drink every chance I got. But when I drank, I ended up drunk. The only thing that I had that I ever did well prior to Alcoholics Anonymous was baseball. I loved baseball. I eat, slept, played baseball in my dreams. I uh, seemed to have a talent for baseball. I got married when I was 16, so... What everybody else at 16 does, you know, I, uh, it was her fault. <laughs> so we got pregnant and, and uh, I got married and, and uh, uh, quit playing hardball. And I was, I, I had the talent. All the kids in the neighborhood told me I had the talent. And I started playing men's fast pitch softball. When I was 20 years old, I played in a league. Uh, men's fast pitch softball where the average pitcher threw 95 to 100 miles an hour. I batted a little over 300. I played third base. I was, uh, uh, I used to say I was voted all state third base in the state of Missouri, but that wasn't true. I had to change it after I sobered a little bit. <laughs> but I loved playing baseball. And I remember one night, it was probably, my mother died in June, it was probably a month after she died. Uh, 
we had a game. It was a tournament game, and I was, you know, always expected to be there, and I was always there. I never, ever missed a baseball game. And this young lady and her friend and another guy said, listen, we're going to go out and have a few drinks this afternoon, and uh, uh, we'll go watch you play ball tonight, and then we'll go party some more. And I said, fine. Sometime after that first drink that afternoon, we had another drink and another drink and another drink. And all of a sudden it became obvious to me at the age of 20 years old uh, that alcohol had become more important than playing baseball. We ended up in Lincoln, Nebraska that night. Alcohol had become more important than women years before. I could always find another woman. It had always become important. And so for the next 10 years, literally, what I went through is, is a series of, of uh, self-imposed crises. Over the next 10 years is when really uh, my life just went downhill. There was five years of, uh, uh, of that 10 spent in Missouri State Penitentiary, Fulton State Hospital in Fulton, Missouri, a big building, Ward 8. That's where uh, there's never a dull moment in that ward. I want you to know, Lord, there's never a dull moment. Uh, where it was in jail and out of jail. I got so skinny shooting dope during that period of time that I could hula hoop through a Cheerio. I just, you know, I, I drank whiskey and shoot dope, and that's all I did. Chase women and forget what to do with them. I just, uh, but it was the only thing that allowed me to live. There were some things that had happened to me uh, early on in, in, in those periods of time, some stuff that I had done or actions, things that had happened to me. My mother, for one, put that in that little secret place back there. The night my mother died, the very next night I was out playing baseball. Uh, just trying to keep it off my mind, just trying to do something to make that thing go away. There were mornings, I remember the very first time I compromised my marriage. And I woke up the next morning and I was in bed and it wasn't my wife, it was somebody else. And I remember getting up and walking into the kitchen and just dying a little bit on the inside. And thinking, how did this happen? My wife and I went out there the night before Went out and party, and I don't know how that happened. I ended up with somebody else. I didn't know where she was. And the only thing that I could ever do once I did something like that was take another drink, just to make it go away, just to make the picture and the memory of it go away. And it seemed like every time I drank, I just created more of the same. It was day in and day out. My birthday was March the 16th. My mother's birthday is March the 16th. I spent seven years in a row just trying to get through my mother's birthday, locked up, because I'd have to start her. I had, a hate, I had acquired a hatred towards her uh, that I couldn't get rid of. I used to take pride in, in telling my friends that my mother was a bitch, but I was the only one that could say it. And I used to say that all the time, and I hated it. Every time I'd say that, I always felt bad. 
But I was the one, my sister told me one time, that you were the only member of our family who couldn't understand that our mother was sick. And I really couldn't. But it didn't have anything to do with her. It had everything to do with me. And I may get to that later. But I had a hatred that I couldn't get rid of. And that hatred that I had towards her seemed to transcend and go to everybody else in my life. My dad was a very, very kind, sweet, and gentle man. He worked 51 and a half years at one job. Uh, I'd seen him many mornings roll out, roll out of bed onto the floor and uh, spend about a half hour getting up to his feet and then uh, fixing himself a cup of coffee and walking three miles to work just so us kids uh, could have something to eat or, or us kids could uh, uh, have another dollar in our pocket or us kids would have enough money to go play baseball or, or, or buy us another ball drive. And he was, I mean, he was a very, very kind, sweet, gentle, loving man. He never, ever caused any trouble for anybody. And so when I had a kid for my first marriage, that's what I wanted to be like with my dad. Every part of me wanted to be exactly like him. I wanted to love this boy exactly the way my dad had loved me. And no matter how hard I tried, it seemed to just go downhill. I mean, it just seemed to go downhill. We, his name is Kevin. And we were playing in the house one day. And he was chasing me and, and he caught me and and I'd chase him and I'd catch him and, and we were running through the house and I had a hold of his hand. He was two years old. I had a hold of his hand and he was just laughing and all of a sudden he stopped and I didn't and he let out a blood curdling scream and uh, I thought I'd pull his shoulder out of him just completely up and we took him to the hospital and I had to sit there and hold him down while they x-rayed. And the harder I held him down, the more he screamed. And he wouldn't quit screaming. It was just non-stop. And they x-rayed his shoulder. And they found absolutely nothing wrong with his shoulder. And I'm standing there talking to the doctor, and, and I got his arm pressed down, and the doctor said, let go of his wrist. And I let go of his wrist, and he quit screaming. I broke a bone in his wrist. He just kills me. And so I drink. I mean, that's what I do. And I can't stand the thing I become. And that little thing there goes into the secret place. I wake up in bed one morning with my best friend's wife. And that goes into the secret place. I quit a job that I loved. And, and I can't tell anybody I quit. I have to tell people that something happened and Kenny fired me. And that goes into the secret place. And I steal. And I put that in. And it all goes into the secret place. So by the time I'm 30 years old, my secret place is full. I mean, there's absolutely nothing left that I haven't done. I've been in fist fights. I've been in gun fights. I've, I've been stabbed. I've been shot at. You know, I got beat up so bad by the St. John, Missouri Police Department one night. Rodney King would have been impressed. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I had 13 charges of assaulting a police officer. I never really ever minded going to jail. 
Anybody else here like that? I never really minded. I could rip. But sometimes I just didn't want to go willingly. Sometimes it was okay. I could rip. Other times I just didn't want to go willingly. And so I'd fight. And I'd fight with the police. And then this night, uh, there was about 50 people in a, it was a dance. And I was a bouncer at the dance. And, and there was about 50 people in the fight. And my best friend got shot. Uh, another one of the guys there with me got cut. And I was the only one who got arrested. And I didn't go willing. Uh, and they pulled me out of a paddy wagon. Uh, they had my, uh, hands handcuffed behind my back. They had finally, the only way they'd get me out of the paddy wagon was to handcuff my feet. One of them tackled me and they handcuffed my feet. And they pulled me out of the paddy wagon face down, feet first, and then drug me up the steps that way. Face down, feet first. He stood me up at the top of the steps and, and I remember a guy, an officer named Frank said, uh, uh, you got blood on my brand new shirt, so I spit in his face. And that's how I lived when I got I lived that way day in and day out. I had absolutely no conscience of who I hurt or who got hurt in the process until the next morning. And the next morning, that morning after with me was just, uh, uh, a morning of horror. And the only way I could make it go away was more of the same. And then I'd create more of the same. I got in a fight and got arrested for aggravated assault and, and uh, uh, got sentenced by the courts to go see a psychologist at the Northwest Kansas Guidance Center. And, uh, <clears throat> I went up and, and, uh, I never really ever thought that alcohol was my problem. I never thought that. I remember many, many, many times where I would have a job for a little while. And I'd get off work with some of the guys and, and we'd go in and we'd sit down and, and, uh, We'd have a drink and it got five o'clock, four thirty or five o'clock, and they'd get up and and uh, go home for supper. I'd go to New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> I headed New Orleans seven years in a row, and the closest I ever got was St. Louis. That was on a bus. But I could never ever really understand why they would go home. I could never understand how <coughs> after a drink or two or three something would change on the inside of me. I just didn't want to go home. I mean, I I was alive and exciting and it was the end of a, a, a terrible day. But that's over and done with, and things are up and well and cheerful right now, and and uh, let's go. And you know, I'm one of those that that if somebody comes and says, "Hey, let's go to Denver for breakfast," I say, "All right." I don't care if I got a wife and kids and a job to go to. Breakfast in Denver can be good. <laughs> And so we load up the car and we went to Denver one morning for breakfast. I mean, that's the way I am. And I don't know where I learned that. My nephew, he didn't learn that. 
my guys would say, you know, guys I run around with, my best friend Wizzo, he's the one that got shot. He said, no, can't go, gotta work. I don't know where he learned that. I just go. And I was, I was always going someplace. That place in the book where it says, take a trip or not take a trip. One thing I never done was not take a trip. He thought I'm gone. I just go. I get up and go. And I can never understand that about me. I can never understand after a drink what would happen to me. I never ever could I was able to, to figure that out while I think. It was only after a period of time. There were times where I drink where I couldn't, you know, you know how it is when you go home to your wife or your girlfriend or sometimes both. Uh and they say, Where you been? And you don't know. So they tell you. <laughs> and then then you get where you don't trust me anymore because it's hard to trust people who know more about what you did than you do. <laughs> I mean, it just really is. Uh, and sometimes I try to tell them. I'll give you an example. <coughs> my sister-in-law, Gail, was going to a Christian college in southwest Missouri, down around Branson. And uh, she was on vacation. She spent a week with us. And she had, and we lived in Manhattan, and she had to uh, be back in St. Joe, Missouri at 5.30 in the afternoon on Saturday to catch her ride back down to Branson, Missouri, where she was going to school. And so my wife and my kids and I decided that we'd just take her back up to St. Joe. We'd leave probably around noon, a couple hour drive, get up around two, spend some time with our families, you know, and, and uh, my sister and her mother and her brother and sisters, and, and uh, uh, then we'd come back soon. I said, good, I'm going to go into Manhattan, get the oil changed on my car, uh, gas it up, and I'll be home. So I did. I went into Manhattan. Pulled it down to Klepper's filling station and told him to change the oil and gas it up. I walked down to the merry-go-round bar. Just have a beer. That tasted pretty good. So I had no, wasn't really anybody in the merry-go-round. So I thought, well, I'll just go across the street to Blue Lounge, see who's over there. There's a couple guys over there. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. There's a couple guys in there getting ready to go fishing or been fishing or something. And, uh, uh, we sat there and we had a couple drinks and, and they said, well, let's go down to the Red Lion. Have a couple more. So we'll go down to the Red Lion. I said, okay, I gotta go get my car. Well, I better take something with me. So I bought a little bottle, put my little brown paper bag and walked down and got my car. Went to St. Joe by myself. That's hard to explain. I mean, it's hard to explain to your wife how that could happen. It's hard to explain to your sister-in-law how that could happen. And so the only thing I ever did was I just blamed it on them. It's their fault. Like, I never, and I would do that time after time after time. 
and I could never understand it. Sometimes my drinking was ended at just a, a great bouts of self-pity. Sometimes it ended in rage. Sometimes it ended in jail. Sometimes it ended in uh, 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 very, very terrible and devastating ways. And I can never really understand. I never really ever thought that I was alcoholic. I was not like my mother. I didn't drink the way my mother drank. Um, I didn't live the way she did. But in my mind, she was an alcoholic. And I wasn't. Alcohol wasn't the problem. And that's the way I always looked at it. It wasn't alcohol. When they sent me to this psychologist, uh, we were sitting there one day and they gave us these tests that they give us. That water was lumpy. <laughs> Rorschach test. That MMPI, that Minnesota multiphasional test that tests your personality. You take it two hours apart and four different people show up. Just... I like, anybody here ever do that? Tom, you ever do that Rorschach test? That's a fun one. I mean, I like that one. I learned, the very first time I took that test, I learned it. Don't tell them you see anything sexy because they're going to think you're a pervert. That's where I learned the first time. So, I seen some nice clouds. Really nice mountains. A couple lions and a tiger and a bear. You know, nothing sexy. After all the tests, they gave me another one. I don't remember exactly which one it was, so I, I, I don't ever talk about it. They get, there was three of them. And this guy's name was Alan. Davis and I, I, I said, <laughs> we're sitting there talking and he asked me how well I'm doing. I said, I'm really doing good. I'm going to work every day. I'm going home every night. I'm paying my bills. Uh, I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good father. And everything is just wonderful right now. And he looks at my wife and he says, is that true? She said, yeah, but all, all but last weekend. <laughs> I was gone last weekend. But anyway, we're sitting there, and he's starting to quiz me about some of this stuff. And I'm getting very uncomfortable. So I asked him, I said, what does all this testing show you? He said, it shows us that you got a drinking problem. I'm going to tell you exactly what my words were. My words were, you're full of shit. If this world and its people would just leave me alone, I'd be okay. And that's how exactly how I felt. This world and its people would be okay. We left there that day and my wife said to me, she said, Jesus Christ, the drinking problem, is that the best they can do? <laughs> Isn't that good? I just love her. I just... Two weeks before we got married, we went to a, a New Year's Eve party. It was... Uh, December the 31st, 1969. We got married January the 17th. Uh, 
December 31st, 1969, there were 18 guys and their girlfriends and wives at the party. Four of them stayed out of the fight. And my buddy Wizzo and I uh, fought the other 12. <laughs> we lost. <laughs> but we put four people in the hospital that night. They choked me so bad my false teeth fell out. We had, we had to stop the fight so I could pick up my false teeth and put it back in. And we left there with a 12-gauge shotgun stuck in the back of our head, laughing all the way. And she says, is that the best they can do with drinking problems? And so the problems that I had in my mind by the time I was 30 years over were very, very, very simple problems. I hated being sober. I hated the way I thought when I was sober. I hated the way I felt when I was sober. And the only time that I ever, ever got any relief was when I was drinking. I like Ken High Whiskey. I like Old Crow. I like Jim Beam. I like that stuff that tastes just as good coming back up as it did going down. And burns your nose and your eyes. And you just, uh, I like wine. Santa Rosa Red, you can puke in technical. But that was the only time. There was a moment in there, in that period of time, where I was just okay. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that big of a deal. <coughs> I went to my first meeting. Uh, the psychologist. After I calmed down, I, I said, what do I do about it? And he said, there's a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And what they do in this program, Alcoholics Anonymous, is they don't, they don't drink for one day and then they repeat the process. And I said, that sounds fine. And he gave me a couple phone numbers. One was a guy named Bob F. And another one was, his name was Paul P. And, uh, he said, if you'd like to go to a meeting, call one of these guys, they'll be happy to pick you up and take you. And I thought, not drinking for one day and repeating the process can't be too hard. And within six days, I was doing really, really pretty well. On the seventh day, I decided this really wasn't a big deal. It's not a big deal at all. And so I stopped down with Dee and a couple of the guys at work, and, and that sent me on uh, my next to the last drug. I called this guy, his name was Bob, and, and he took me to, uh, uh, this was on a Sunday when I called him. And him and his wife came over, and, and uh, his wife was in Al-Anon, and, and he was in AA, and he was sober uh, about a year and a half. And uh, he took me to my first meeting. No, excuse me, he was sober a year. This is January 1975. And he was sober a year, and, and he said, if you can stay sober till Thursday, I'll take you to a meeting. And so I went to work Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and forced my car to drive straight home. You know, cars have a mind of their own. They want to turn. Oh, bar. And it just automatically turns. And so I, I did that. And I went to my first AA meeting 
It was in St. Mary's, Kansas. And the very first meeting I went to was on the first step. And I remember asking three different times in that specific meeting what the first step was. And three different people gave me their story in a very, very brief period of time. And when they were done, I, I absolutely understood less about the first step than what I did when I went in. And then they had another meeting. It was an open discussion meeting. And I'm going to tell you the thing that impressed me about you. At the beginning of the meeting, a guy named Harold walked up and gave me a big book. Second edition big book. And I said, how much is this? And he said, somebody bought it for you. There's a new guy here you can buy one from here. And I said, okay. And I went over and I sat down. And this is what impressed me about you. They passed the basket. And when it come to me, they didn't want my dollar. They said they were just happy that I was there. I sat in those meetings. I went to meetings for five and a half months, virtually every night. And there was a part of me that absolutely knew I wasn't like them. We had an old guy in, in Wamego, his name was Clyde, and, and, and uh, Clyde was sober about six months. And I was sober about two and a half or three. And, and Clyde, when it come his turn to talk, he would say, I put the plug in the jug. I don't drink. I go to work every day. I bring my pay home to my wife. I pay my bills. And I go to my one AA meeting a week, and everything is just wonderful. <laughs> and I hate it, Clark. I mean, I'm going. I, I go to work every day. I put the plug in the jug. I'm going to a meeting every night because this crazy Bob that I call don't like his wife and don't want to stay home, and so we're just going all over the countryside. And I'm sitting there listening to Clark, and I think. I'm not alcoholic. I must be crazy. Because he said he got better when he stopped drinking. And when I stop drinking, everything gets worse. And I can't stand it. Five and a half months sober, I uh, went on what was my last drug. It started uh, uh, actually in the middle of July and ended on the night of the 4th of August or sometime early in the morning on the 5th. I was never, ever alcoholic. And that morning when I got up, and I'll never forget it, uh, my wife pulled me out of a Skid Row wine old bar the night before. It's a place called Sandy's Tavern. And it's where my mother drank where she lived. She had, she had three or four bars that she went to. Sandy Tavern, the Silver Dollar, and uh, 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 Jack's Bar and Terry Tavern. There's four bars there on Skid Row and things on the girl. And uh, she pulled me out of Sandy Tavern. We stood outside and talked. And, and uh, I had probably what was my moment of clarity. I'd been drunk passed out and came to and drunk and passed out and came to for the last five days. And uh, I'm standing out there talking to her. And it was as though the neon light 
quit prices. The horns that were honking on the cars that were driving up and down the street just shut up. The winos who were sitting in the vestibules over on the corner seemed to just be quiet. Uh, the ladies of the night were there. And I was left completely, and it was just like it was just all set up. And I was left completely alone in peace with one little thought. And that little thought was this. That if you don't go home and quit drinking, you're going to die. And I walked back into the bar and bought a six-pack of beer and drank three and a half, ten down that six-pack of beer. I had a whole drink since then. That was my last drink. Over the next month, the uh, book says that we had to accept to our innermost selves that we were a real alcoholic. The delusion that we are like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. I went into a treatment center. Uh, the State Hospital, a place called Kirk Ragging. And, uh, they told me that's just what it was. It was a treatment center. They were just going to teach me a little bit about alcohol. It wasn't AA. They didn't do AA there. They said the only place to do AA is in AA. You want to do AA, go to AA. And, uh, uh, my counselor's name was Dave. And Dave was a crazy guy. I mean, he was a crazy guy. Gun battle, knife fight. Uh, bad whiskey drinker. DP. And he's the only guy in Alcoholics Anonymous that I ever talked to, that I ever listened to, that I ever heard that lived any place close to the way I live. And I was sitting in his office one day and he said, Gary, he said, I think you're a chief stepper. He said, I think you're, you know you're an alcoholic and you want to give it away and help somebody else. And you've never ever done anything in between. And someplace down on the inside of me came a simple little bitty calming statement. I'm just an alcoholic. That's all I am. And from that day to this, that's all I've done is just an alcoholic. I'm not anything different. Not anything special. I, one little story. I, I gotta tell you this story. Mainly because I really like the way I tell it. <laughs> and I haven't heard it for a while. So, I'll tell you the story. But this story will give you an idea of exactly how I lived my life sober. Exactly. They had their what they call the self-appraisal. What this self-appraisal was, was they had this, this little paper. And you write down on one side of the piece of paper all the bad things about you. And then, when you get down to the bottom of that side of the paper, you go to the other side of the paper, and you write the good things about you. And the philosophy of that is a very simple one. The bad things will take you down to a point to where they can help you. The good things will pick you back up enough so you won't kill them in the cross. That's exactly the way I look at it. And I wrote down the bad things on this one side of the paper. It's just the surface stuff. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I cheated on my wife. I hurt my kids. I mean, just 
you know, just the, I can't hold the job, just the surface stuff of what's wrong. And I got all the way down to the bottom of that piece of paper. And I got to the top side of the other, and I tried to find something good about it. I'm 30 years old. I'm a failure as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a worker, even as an old and I tried to write something good about me on that piece of paper, and I couldn't find anything. I was a nothing. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, I'm trying to do something about my problem. And I put, I'm trying to do something about my problem. Second thing I put was, I used to be a good baseball player. And that was it. And then I had to take it into this room and read it to these people. And I got three or four things down the bad side of the list, and I broke emotionally. And I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't shut it off. And my counselor, Dave, ended the session, and then he spent about 30 minutes putting me back together. And he sent me out to get a cup of coffee, and I walked out to where the coffee pot was, and I poured a cup of coffee, and there was a, a couple in there, their names was uh, uh, Connie and Leroy. And Connie walked up to me and she said, Gary, she said, there was something I really, really wanted to say to you in there. Uh, but you were in such bad shape, I couldn't. But you look like you're doing better now, so I think I'll just tell you now. And I said, that's fine, Connie, go ahead. She said, some days I think that you think you're Jesus Christ. <laughs> now to her I said, no. But you know what I thought? I know I'm not here, but I'll do till he gets back. Now, how can you go from the absolute depths of nothingness to where you're nothing, to where there's absolutely nothing good about your life, to where you're so heavenly you're no earthly good to anybody in 30 minutes? That's how I lived my life. Either one extreme or another. There was never, ever any place in between. And the only time I ever found that was when I drank was someplace around six shots or four shots or eight beers. Someplace. That's the only time I ever found that. After a home run or a game-winning single or a play that just, you know, the only place I ever found that place where I fit in. I always had to be treated special just to feel like I was equal. I always had to have that. And I've never forgotten that. Alcoholics Anonymous is an Italian place. When I was sober 10 years, I'd been through stuff. A guy moved into Manhattan, Kansas, in Southern California. I was writing my inventory. The day before, I was sitting at home. The night before that, I'd been into a bar. Sober 15 months, walked into a bar. And uh, uh, got out of the bar. And I didn't drink. And I walked in there to drink. Because I, I just, you know, I just I just couldn't do it anymore. I just could not drink. And, and I called this counselor. I called four or five AA members. And I called this counselor. And it's interesting to me what this counselor said to me. His name is Dave. He said, 
He didn't talk to me about anything other than what would you think of when you walked into the bar? What would you think? I just left an AA meeting. And so we talked about what I was thinking prior to walking into that bar. And we talked about what it means to be alcoholic. That once that type of thinking process sets in with people like me, I'm doomed to drink. How I managed to get out of that bar that night without drinking is totally beyond me. And then he talked to me about what happens with me after I drink. The same thing that happened with him. He said, once you drink, once you take that first drink, first one's mental, every other one is, is, is physical. Bob talked about it last night. The phenomenon of craving. Dr. Silkworth says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect. And once I took, I mean, and it happened to me time and time again. Once I took a drink, I had to have another. And another. And another. And I would, I would sacrifice everything in my life for that next one once I took it. And I did that time after time. And that's what we talked about. We talked about the things that I thought prior to taking that first drink. <coughs> and so alcoholism with me was a very, very simple thing. From that day to this. I always had several different little bitty things that would trigger me. More often than not, it was, it was some simple little thought. This time it'll be different. This time I'll have just one or two or three. Well, who in the hell cares anyway? It's really none of their damn business whether I drink. If I want to drink, I'll drink. It was always that kind of thing. Or alcohol is not a problem for me. Alcohol is a problem for mama. That night with that quart of false gas beer, 13 years old, I remember thinking, God, alcohol is a problem for mama, but look how it makes me feel. Always that type of thinking that was present. That's what he talked to me about. And he said, where you're at? And I knew I was alcoholic. He said, where you're at is a step two. And he said, I'm going to simplify it for you. Do you believe there's a God? And I'd always believed there was one. I'd been dipped in Duncan sprinkled and sprayed so many times. I mean, come out far drunker than what I was when I went in. But I always believed there was one. And I said, yes. And he said, what do you believe about this guy? And I said, I know he ain't going to get me. And that was all I could believe. He said, that's enough to make the beginning. And, and where you're at now is step three. And I said, I don't know how to pray. And he said, one of the things that I'm most grateful for is the people who wrote the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, thought they put a prayer in there for dummies like me and you. And he said, i got to go. And he hung up the phone. And I picked up my book, Alcoholics Anonymous, my second edition book. And I started at the very beginning because I didn't know where it was. I read until I found it. Someplace between the very first page of that book and the page that that prayer is on, this happened to me. I thought, just maybe, if I do what they say they did in this book, 
this may be actually help what they have. I found that prayer and I asked myself, can I utterly and completely give myself to, to him? And my answer was, I don't know. Uh, but anything has to be better than, uh, than what he is now. So anything that I give over to him has to be better than what he is now. So I got down on my knees and I read that prayer out loud. And, and uh, when I was done, I knew what was next. Now was to write the inventory. And so I drew the diagram, got my ruler out, and my pencil drew the diagram, just like in the book. And I put I'm the example at, and, and uh, <coughs> the cause of the resentment is eczema. And I started writing, I couldn't write. And my hand would get right there and he'd shake, and I couldn't put nothing there. And I knew if I didn't get the absolute one first that was killing me, I wouldn't get it. And I couldn't get it down. And I, I, I'd start, and, I, and finally, I stopped. And I called Dave back, and Dave said, just write. And I'm standing there, and I'm trying to write, and all of a sudden, it just dawned on me that what I'd just done was made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the God. And what that meant was that he was either going to take care of me, or he wasn't. If he did, I was going to be okay. And if he did, I wasn't going to be worse off. So I said the absolute first prayer I ever remember saying in my own words was, God, help me get this shit on paper. <laughs> and started writing. Now, I could change that word, that lot of, but that was it. And I started writing. I wrote about every rotten, self-corruptible thing I'd ever done. Or anybody had ever done to me. Some people tell me I've done an immoral anything. Moral in the dictionary means good and bad and respects the conduct. I never ever got any good conduct work. I mean, I, I'm in a nut house with me and a guy named Harold Reardon are both the two most likely not to succeed. <laughs> Every rotten, filthy, corruptible thing I ever done. And I got it down. And I went back up to the nut house. Talk to Father O'Shea, Catholic priest of Baptist. I just love that. I just love that. Never ever tell a Baptist preacher some of this stuff. You know, they, they would, I mean, I've talked to a couple of them and they excommunicated me from their house. But I went to a, a Catholic priest and he called in that day. Called in sick. And I didn't know they could do that, but he did. <laughs> I guess they can. Speakers do it. <laughs> but that night I went to an AA meeting. There was a lady named Claudia there that had moved from Southern California to Manhattan, Kansas. And the meeting happened to be on the fourth step. And I said, I just got mine written. It's finished. I got it out in the car. I went up to Topeka to the nut house to talk to Father O'Shea to do my fifth step. And, and he wasn't there. And so I'll try again tomorrow. And she walked up to me after the meeting was over and she said, let's go do your fifth step. And so we went over and spent about three hours talking about over every rotten, filthy, corruptible thing I'd ever done. And she shared some things that she had done and I shared some things about my life that had happened to me and she shared some things about her life that had happened to her. 
uh, when I walked away, uh, something had happened to me on the inside. I didn't hate anybody anymore. I had a sense of feeling that, that uh, for whatever reason, I had a chance in the world. I remember early on going into meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and sitting in there and someplace to get between that, that strange prayer at the beginning of the meeting and the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting. I'd have maybe five seconds where my mind just shut off. I think just like Bob said. I can't shut it off. I've never been able to shut my mind off. So the only thing that I've ever learned in 25 years now calling tomorrow is that I don't try. I learned a long time ago, you cannot think yourself into a new way of living. Absolutely. I mean, I can have some of the absolute greatest thoughts in the world, but they will be replaced by better. I mean, in a very, very short period of time. And if I think it, I just well done it. And so I have to work all the harder just to try to stay away from the way I think. I mean, the way I think is just tough. I'll give you an example. When I was 10 years sober, my sponsor, his name was Bill. My first sponsor, Mike, he took me through the rest of the steps. He taught me how to make the amends and, and worked very closely with me during that process. And, and probably did the absolute greatest thing that anybody could do for a guy like me. He taught me how to be of service to other people. He taught me that my life was not based upon what I did with him. My life was based upon trying to help other people. He used to tell me, if you want to pick pieces, you got to go to the orchard. And the orchard for you is alcoholics and arms, because that's what people like you are. And I'd say, but they're in that bad group. He'd say, well, go there and get them before they do. And so I'd go to meetings with alcoholics and arms, and, uh, and I'd just try to pass on through what, you know, what was given me. When I was over 10 years, I, I was sponsoring something like 15 guys. Uh, Mike had moved to South Dakota, and, and uh, uh, I got another sponsor, his name was Bill, and he was probably the most knowledgeable about the book Alcoholics Anonymous I'd ever met. And uh, they kicked him out of AA in secret. That's a true story. Uh, he was in closed meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. And in his mind, the closed meeting was for Alcoholics Only. Wasn't for anybody else. And in this closed meeting, they'd asked him to be chairman. And if he's chairman of a closed meeting, it's for Alcoholics Only. And if you don't say you're alcoholic in his closed meeting, you can't come. Now, there'll be some people there that will take you outside and explain to you exactly what an alcoholic is. And there was a guy there that night that thought he was being cute. He was a dipsomaniac. And Bill just didn't buy into it. And Bill was DCM in the district. And uh, he asked the guy to leave that meeting that night. And a couple guys took him out and talked to him. And the guy been sober about six months. He was extremely rigid. But he loved alcoholics and And the closed meeting to him was a closed meeting. The next district meeting, they fired him the DCM. I didn't know you could do that, but they did it. 
And they got another DCM, and they made it so uncomfortable for him he couldn't go to meetings. Every time he went to a meeting, somebody would attack him. So he got to go to meetings carrying a gun. He's five foot eight, weighs 135, 140 pounds. And finally, he just quit AA. And uh, uh, so I, there were problems at home. I mean, I just, my wife and I was just really, really having a hard time, and I needed another sponsor. Uh, last conversation I'd had with Bill, I talked to him about some of the problems. And I said, did you ever have that problem? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what did you do? And I told her straight and her act up or get the hell out. And I knew that seemed to be the wrong thing. <laughs> so I called this guy, I called Dick. And I asked him where he's going to be that weekend. And he told me he's going to be in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I asked him if I could come up and talk to him. And I went up and talked to him. And on the way up there, I decided, listen, I don't know where my life's going. Uh, I don't know where, what I'm going to do. But whatever this guy tells me to do, I'm willing to do. And I went up and I asked him to be my sponsor. And he said, uh, the way we say, Jerry, is I'd like to ask you to be my sponsor, please. And I said, please, would you be my sponsor? And he talked to me about what he did. That's the things that he did. Just what he did. He goes to meetings about college members. He works in session. And he sponsors people. And, and, and he's very active in that. I mean, he went through a whole litany of stuff that he did. And all of it was stuff that I was pretty much doing at the time. And so I talked to him specifically about the problem that I had at home. And he said to me, this is what I want you to do. He said, I, I'm going to sponsor you. And he said, I'm looking forward to sponsoring you. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to write down on a piece of paper everything there is to know about you. Where you're at in time and space. And I said, would you explain time and space? He said, I want to know how many meetings you're going to. I want to know where you're at in steps. I want to know if you're married, how your relationship with your wife is. He said, I want to know if all of you are men for made or if you have any past demands you haven't made. I want to know if your bills are current. And I want to know if you got any money in savings. And I want you to go home tonight or tomorrow night when you get off here. I want you to write that tomorrow night and Monday. Drop it in the mail Tuesday. I'll get it Thursday. I want you to call me on Friday and we'll talk about it. And then we talked about the problem that I had momentarily with my wife. And I said, what do I do about my wife? She really is crazy. And she really acts funny. She said, every time she acts funny, I want you to buy her a rose. I said, what for? She don't deserve a rose where she's acting funny. He said, she may not be acting funny. He said, your problem is the way you see things. You see things through self-centered eyes and self-centered fits. Just go buy her a rose. And so I went, and every time my wife acted funny, I bought her a rose. And she acted funny a lot. I'll tell you how I, how I think. 
This is the thing that took me to my present sponsor. It was a Monday afternoon. I had to be at work at 3.30. Uh, she was off work that day, and, and I was getting ready to go to work, and she was, I think she was working at the phone company at the time, had to be at work at 4. And we were arguing about something stupid. And I think I thought she had a boyfriend, and, and she thought I had a girlfriend. And it was just, I mean, it was just crazy in our house. And, and I was asking, she said, why don't you leave me alone? God isn't finished with me yet. And what I said was, some days, bitch, I don't even think he started. And that's the way I think. It's the only time I've ever cussed my wife. Even in all of the drunken stupors, I never cussed. And that's the thing that took me to him. So when I say she acts funny, there's always a way of thinking about me that is still there today. As sad as it may be. But I act differently now. I bought her those roses. And I still buy her roses and she acts funny. Now she thinks I'm buying them because she's doing good. But I'll tell you what I learned. It didn't have anything to do with the road. It had to do with the actions that I took. That literally changed my perception of her. And so if you knew this, I guess I want you to know this. Alcoholics Anonymous is an exciting place. Alcoholics Anonymous is the only place where I have ever felt like I'm okay. Wherever it felt like I had a chance. If you're new here today, I guess my message to you is a very, very simple one. And it's this. Take that big book. Do what they say they did in that book. Find your sponsor. Do what he does. And I want you to know, you can have what they have. Thank you. Yeah.